five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space friends. I was thrilled to sit down this week with Delian Asperuhov, who's a principal at Founders Fund, the famed venture capital fund, and also a co-founder and president of WADA, a space startup that's focused on in-space manufacturing. So we have a lot of interesting things to talk about. If you enjoy the podcast, just a reminder, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform so other people can find it. Thank you very much. And as always, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors. And then please enjoy my conversation with Delia. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, welcome back, everybody. This week, I'm here with Delian Asparuov. Hey, welcome, Delian, to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Rafael. Very excited. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to that. I mean, uh, obviously, we have overlapping roles. Uh, well, to some of our roles are overlapping. We're both involved in venture capital investing and looking at the space sector. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for a start? Yeah, so my brief background, I'm currently a uh, principal at Founders Fund, uh, which is one of the uh, sort of preeminent venture firms, uh, you know, based in both Silicon Valley and Miami. Uh, I myself am based in Miami. Uh, we have a total of, you know, on the order of sort of 20 billion in AUM and 3 billion in sort of recent funds uh, and invest anywhere from, you know, sort of leading seed rounds with a, you know, 750K check all the way to leading series F rounds with $200 million checks um, across a wide variety of industries from everything from we're one of the biggest checks in Airbnb, but we were also one of the biggest checks in SpaceX. Since aerospace is a sort of significant, you know, uh, focus area, but we also do very broad set of investing. Uh, and then I actually split my time between investing at Founders Fund with a company that I actually incubated. Founders Fund is famous for uh, doing uh, several uh, relatively large incubations, Palantir being our very first one. Uh, and more recently, uh, you know, Andrel, which has done quite well in the United States. And then we've actually done two incubations in the past sort of year. Uh, Varda, which I incubated in OpenStore, which one of my partners incubated. Uh, and so I split my time uh, with, uh, you know, Varda, where I'm the sort of president and chairman of the company. Uh, and there we're basically building the world's first uh, space factories. And so uh, we uh, take raw materials up to space fabricate them in a way that is just not possible on Earth, and then bring those materials back down to our customers down here on Earth. So I always say we're making space factories that are for Earth, not space factories for space. Um, so yeah, that's me. Well, fantastic. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, we could just spend hours just talking about Founders Fund. It's probably fair to say that Founders Fund must have one of the biggest uh, stables of unicorns, so to say, on Earth. <laughs> but we, we can't do this any justice, and it's a space podcast. So I suggest we, um, let's focus on two topics here. Let's talk a little bit about space in general and your thoughts on space in general and the opportunity that I think we both um, probably agree that exists there over the next years and maybe even decades. And then after that, we can delve a little bit more into, into Vada because it's just such an, such an interesting company. But 
why don't we start with space in general? And uh, first question, I mean, how did you actually get involved in sort of like space investments? Is it as simple as saying that, well, as you said, Founders Fund, obviously very close to SpaceX, one of the biggest investors, uh, one of, I think one of your former partners, Luke, is still on the board of SpaceX. Is it as simple as that or is there more of a story? Yeah, I, you know, I had been a space enthusiast for, you know, quite some time ever since, you know, I was a kid and, uh, you know, sort of grew up in high school in the United States, uh, you know, sort of around, uh, you know, to sort of 2008, 2011, uh, which is sort of the, you know, early, you know, SpaceX years is they were just sort of getting Falcon 1 off the ground um, and the company was starting to, you know, launch on a more and more regular basis. Uh, and so that was honestly, you know, the original inspiration was the combination of sort of like, you know, sci-fi books and seeking SpaceX. Um, but I didn't really know how I wanted to approach, you know, the industry. Um, I had a couple of friends. I ended up studying computer science at MIT and I had a couple of friends um, that after MIT ended up deciding to go work at SpaceX directly. And that was how they decided to get involved in the industry. Uh, but it just wasn't a path that excited me. Um, you know, I found myself to be a pretty decent, you know, software engineer. But what I really liked was the combination of engineering, business, product, sales, et cetera, being much more, you know, sort of multidisciplinary. And so I actually ended up leaving MIT, dropping out to start my first company, which is sort of like a boring enterprise healthcare company. But I always consistently told my friends, I was like, the only point of me going to Silicon Valley and starting to understand how to build startups is because like one day I want to do a space company. But I sort of had only mm -hmm. seen one mold of successful space entrepreneur, which was sort of the like, you know, Jervitson, Chamath, you know, Elon, Branson mm -hmm. sort of approach, which is basically like get rich off of normal things and then mm -hmm. like go do space stuff. So I was like, okay, I got to go like do normal things. Like I'll pay attention to the space stuff, mm -hmm. but let's like do the normal things. And then around this sort of like 2016, 17 timeframe, I had this like sudden aha moment where I was like, oh, the barriers to entry and the cost of doing space have dropped enough that you no longer actually have to be a billionaire to necessarily start a successful, you know, space company or to invest in space companies. And so I somewhat, you know, fortuitously through a couple of random circumstances, ended up landing uh, at Coastal Ventures in uh, the summer of 2017. Uh, and Coastal Ventures is actually one of the primary backers of Rocket Lab and of Skybox mm -hmm. back in the day, which sold to Google sure. and eventually became Planet. Um, and so, uh, you know, they were also, uh, like Founders Fund, a sort of uh, very preeminent uh, space investor. And so when I started there, I decided, okay, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I'm now here and have this platform that is known for space investing. I'm going to try to build that up as a personal skill set. Um, and so I started going to space conferences, meeting with space CEOs, and about seven months in, actually made sort of, you know, convinced the firm, uh, you know, to make an investment uh, into my first, you know, sort of space company. And that was when I was like, okay, I'm going to start taking this really seriously. Like now that I actually like saw the fruits of my labor of like, you know, being a hobby for years and years, then eventually being a nights and weekends professional project. And now it's yeah. actually my job. Now I'm going to just like lean as hard into this as much yeah. as I can. And so really starting to spend, you know, 25, 30, 40% of my time um, sort of on space. And that's what eventually led me over to Founders Fund. And eventually, you know, that sort of expertise yeah. uh, is what led me to, you know, eventually incubating Varda. What was that first investment, by the way? Uh, so the first investment actually uh, was this company, Akash Systems. It's sort of like um, chips, chip advanced chipsets for satcom right for, yeah for satcom exactly yeah. exactly so they're gan on diamond sort of satellite radios and so they uh now finally after you know a lot of r&d uh have produced the world's most efficient lowest power highest bandwidth radio that's ever been you know produced mm -hmm. uh for use in satellite communications which can be a huge adva advantage to whichever satellites integrate with it um it, it sort of fits into my sort of original you know and first sort of space thesis uh which was that 
there is clearly a space boom happening, right? The combination of, you know, lowered long costs, ex exponential rise in the amount of, you know, venture investors and dollars flowing into the ecosystem and the exponential rise in the number of satellites going up, that there was this massive gold rush. And the best place to be in a gold rush isn't necessarily be the one scooping for the gold, but being mm -hmm. the people selling the picks and shovels. Picks and shovels. So I've had this very yeah. picks and shovels based approach to, uh, you know, my space investing, where the first one in that thesis was a cost systems. The idea being, okay, everybody needs satellite radios. Well, if you invest in the company that makes the best satellite, radios, they'll be in a very great spot in the value chain to capture a decent amount of value. Uh, and then probably the uh, second and third investments that I made in those category in that category was uh, MagDrive, which is based in the UK. Um, uh, they're a small sat, you know, propulsion startup where mm -hmm. most of the people working on small sat propulsion. So for those that aren't maybe familiar with space, once a satellite goes up into space, it does need to be able to sort of like move itself yeah. around. Yes. Right now, there's sort of two options on two ends of the curve. There's chemical propulsion, which moves you quickly, but is very inefficient. Mm -hmm. And then there's a electric propulsion, which is very efficient, but moves you really, really fast. slowly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both yeah. of them have downsides. Uh, most startups that I'd seen sort of working in small satellite propulsion were sort of marginal improvements on either end of the spectrum. MagDrive was the first one that felt like it was actually sort of a 10x improvement, i.e. they provide both very fast movement, high thrust, and very efficient, i.e. high impulse. Um, and so that was sort of my second investment in the sort of like picks and shovels thesis. Yeah. And then the third is this company called Hadrian based in uh, Los Angeles. Um, that thesis is around most of the aerospace companies in the United States and abroad rely on a network of sort of mom and pop machine shops that were largely set up around World War II uh, that effectively deliver most of the actual metal parts that you need to actually build a rocket, satellite, et cetera. These things are very non-tech forward. However, they, they have extremely specialized hardware and skill sets to build the very precise materials that you need for space. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Hadrian is trying to disrupt that by sort of creating a full stack equivalent of uh, these sort of mom and pop machine shops where they both have software that uh, allows you to track your order and see when it's going to arrive all the way down to they actually run the cnc machines and try to automate the paths and the actual tooling uh to produce the parts that you need uh, and so again similarly you know akash provides the radios MagDrive provides the propulsion uh you know hadrian provides the actual uh you know structures and what you need to actually build the satellite uh, and so i've you know steadily tacked off you know tackled each individual component at some yeah. point i would like to do sort of uh, flight computers that are rad hardened at some point, maybe a yeah, battery, yeah, yeah. a solar panel investment. So uh, yeah. there's more to come with this thesis in terms of investments. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to be across the stack and sort of get broad exposure to space economy and all of the the, yeah, the, the key things that people need. That's that's very smart and kind of, I, I hope we're kind of operating in a, in a, in a similar way. Um, coming back, so taking a step back to on, on, on the macro side, you started mentioning parts of the core parts of the thesis already, you know, which is basically like lowering of barriers, which has to do with like uh, substantially, I think, with the lowering of the costs of accessing space or so like the launch costs just like you know, originally Falcon 9 bringing it down, some other people uh, just being more, having more options, like you mentioned Rocket Lab. And, and, and now we've had actually quite a, not quite a, yeah, we have a few people who have now reached orbit on the private side, right? Like most, um, uh, Firefly tried most recently, didn't make it the first time, probably make it hopefully next time. Obviously Virgin Orbit is there now and um, Astra and other people. So this, this group is expanding. So, and, and this is just one of basically uh, the examples of cost and access um, becoming easier. Uh, probably what uh, some people on average less know that, um, but you and I are very familiar that also the cost of the components is dropping across the curve, sort of like Moore's law and sometimes faster curves. So I think those are kind of the, um, by now almost, at least to people like us, obvious parts of the thesis. I'm curious, do you think there's any sort of like non-obvious parts of the thesis? 
um, you know, why space should be really attractive uh, over the next, um, you know, decades. Yeah, I think the thing that, you know, people pay uh, sometimes almost too much attention to the actual, like, inputs of a space business, i.e. all the, like, you know, costs that go into it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the combination of all these, like, components that you're mentioning. But I think the thing that people haven't necessarily paid enough attention to and should be more on their radar is the output. I, a lot of space companies just sell to other space companies. Yes. And that can be fine while you're propped up by venture capital, et cetera. But at some point, this ecosystem needs to provide value to external providers, right? Um, it's just like, you know, you can't just have a, like, you know, software company only selling to other software companies and eventually has to sell to, like, the Walmart, et cetera, of the world. Otherwise, you get the dot-com boom where everybody's just selling to each other. And then yes. the moment that the venture capital, like, song stops, all of a sudden the entire ecosystem collapses. Yes. You're not actually providing value to, like, the outside world. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that isn't paid enough attention to in space. People talk about a, like, space bubble, but again, they analyze it from the inputs. I owe oh, there's a lot of dollars going into the ecosystem uh, you know, et cetera. But that's not the interesting metric to be tracking in order to determine whether or not there's a bubble. The most interesting metric to be tracking that I think is relatively like non-obvious is how much of all of the space companies' revenues are from companies that have nothing to do with space. Yes. And that number only very recently to me is getting quite, quite exciting. Uh, you know, for example, one of the companies that I think is, you know, most interesting, um, you know, right now that is, uh, I, I forget if they've managed to go public or they're about to, you know, finalize this back, but, you know, Spire, I think has done a really yes. great job of going direct to companies that have nothing to do with space, whether yes. it's, you know, flood insurance, <clears throat> wildfire insurance, hedge funds, et cetera, and providing yeah. them space data and space intelligence but package in a way where like the companies that they're selling to could care less about spire it could, come from, space. Space it could come from somewhere else it doesn't matter yeah exactly it could come from drones it could come from planes that are they could care less and they're providing it in such a package and easy to understand way where like their end customers have to know nothing about space yeah. and that to me is in some ways the most important metric and i feel like that metric is only recently starting to shift and still needs to come a long way to match with the inputs into the system, i.e. the venture capital. But that's also part of the thesis behind Varda of we're a space factories company, but they, they were a materials company. And our customers could care less yeah. about the fact that we're a space materials company. They just care that we have the best materials because yeah. that's what they're purchasing. They're not purchasing anything to do with the fact that we go to space. Yeah, and, and it's, wow, I fully agree with you. It's actually, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a page in our current pitch deck for our current fundraising, which actually is, we kind of, um, one way we split the universe of investable companies in, in quarter quote space right and people have different definitions of that as we both know right one part is what you're mentioning is sort of like the space companies which are what people think about space companies so like rocket companies companies that produce satellites companies produce satellite components and then the other part which arguably is becoming increasingly the more important and interesting one which is the one you're alluding to which is sort of like what companies that take advantage of space technology but alt but to provide something of value to large existing markets on earth and that you know honestly we would like to do much more of that so but let me tell you what the problem is we have and then you can tell me whether you've seen the same thing or what you think about it what we're seeing maybe problem is too hard a word but sort of like the current status of that is we sometimes compare the current situation of space with sort of like the internet was in the mid 90s and when the internet was in the mid 90s if you look at the typical internet well there weren't that many but a typical internet entrepreneur in the mid 90s it was like mac and reason computer science person right hence he does an internet company right now you know if i had to guess i would say 95 percent whatever the vast majority of business plans i get if you go to the team page you know um, uh, space engineering uh, aero, um, aero astro engineering mechanical engineering with a space miner you know uh, worked at airbus and, and that's fine obviously for the space part the problem is if they then want to do something where they sell to um, you know insurance companies or agri companies or chemical companies unfortunately typically they have no understanding whatsoever of their the industry they want to sell in so that's the problem we're running 
running up uh, against a little bit of the moment and trying to have these business models which serve large existing markets on earth. I, I don't know, do you see the same thing? And if yes, what do you think? How, how can we sort of kind of solve that? Yeah, I mean, it, this comes down to, you know, one of the fundamental filters that we have when, you know, we, you know, consider investment, which is does the, uh, you know, core skill sets of the founding team line up with the core risks? And are they world class in a, you know, uh, tackling and burning down, you know, those risks? Um, and I agree that it is something that is quite rare in a space company in that, yes, most are founded by, yeah, JPL, NASA, SpaceX, et cetera, space engineers on the founding team. And it's great to have as a part of the founding team, but you don't want it to have it to have it be the entire founding team. Uh, and so again, I come back to, you know, uh, you know, Varda where, uh, yes, you know, uh, uh, one of our co-founders is a space engineer and he understands that world. From SpaceX. From SpaceX. <laughs> Myself, I'm a like yeah. venture capitalist. I understand the yeah. business world very well. And then our third co-founder, our chief scientist, he's a material scientist that primarily focuses on materials that are used entirely on Earth in Earth-based markets and has like very little skill set, if anything, to do with space, right? And so intentionally tried to set up a very diverse sort of founding team in terms of skill set, strength, et cetera, that were directly correlated with what we found the three core risks to be, which was capital-intensive project, i.e. the financing, the space operations and producing the materials up there, and then the third risk, i.e. bringing that value back down to customers, you know, here on Earth. And so I agree, it's very much a, you know, limitation of the like space ecosystem today that there's not enough non-space people founding space companies because those people would be critical, whether they have a fire or, uh, you know, earthquake insurance background or flooding, you know, background, those types of people should recognize that their skill sets are actually very valuable in the space ecosystem and would be incredible co-founders. And on the flip side, the space engineers should be going out and searching for this type of co-founders. I made a very intentional, I think one of the things that, you know, I think a lot of also founding teams make a mistake of is they tend to just like try to find people that are sort of like themselves and their founding team, right? Yeah. Uh, they go out and they're like, oh, well, like I was at SpaceX. Let me just get a bunch of my SpaceX buddies together and we're going to go co-found a company that's in like XYZ industry. And it's like, okay, or you could be a co-founder and then you could spend six months to a year hunting down world-class people in completely yeah. unrelated industries and then forming a team around that. And I think they think, oh, well, like, how am I going to be a co-founder with, you know, somebody that I've only just met or I've only just interviewed? Well, if you actually, you know, I think most people don't appreciate this. If you run a statistical regression on the companies that have IPO'd in the past decade that have been venture-backed, there's almost no correlation between the amount of time the founders knew each other before starting the business to the outcome of the business. And so yeah. we tend to take the approach in our incubations of just handpicking world-class people across the various skill sets that are necessary and forming those. So for example, you know, Keith Raboy, the partner that I work with a lot of Founders Fund, yeah. he co-founded Opendoor back in the day. The four co-founders literally didn't know each other at all. And yet Opendoor today is a, you know, I think like $17 billion company, right? And they all met basically on day one of the company. And so yeah. I think people don't recognize that this is uh, a very reasonable and appropriate process to go through in terms of finding somebody that has that appropriate, much more diverse skill set than just a space engineer. Yeah, I think it's just so interesting that um, I guess I guess the best case in point for this problematic we're, we're talking about here is that that you guys had to incubate Vada in house, right? Apparently, you couldn't find a existing company, existing team that uh, you were confident enough with. Is that and I, you know, I, I guess we are internally also working on at least sort of two potential incubation projects in, in space because again, we we can't find anybody doing. Is that sort of something similar you're seeing? Do you think Vada may not be the last sort of incubation? 
project in space or do you think there's other opportunities? Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I think, you know, the way that Varda honestly started was I, you know, had had this investment thesis around space manufacturing for quite some time around these materials. And I thought that like for a variety of reasons, it was a sort of very undertapped market because most people were doing things that I thought were sort of much further out, i.e. space manufacturing for space or asteroid mining or lunar mining. Yeah. And those things to me are like sci-fi projects that I get that for some reason venture capitals have backed in the past. But that makes sort of no, you know, no sense to me whatsoever. Versus space manufacturing for Earth is very near term, commercially pragmatic. And so early in 2020, before COVID, I actually went out and spent a lot of time with all the various researchers, teams who are working on this. It sort of came across this fundamental problem where, unfortunately, all of those sort of like founding teams, executives, et cetera, were just way too narrow in terms of skill set and way too close-minded in terms of approach to actually bring it to market that just didn't feel commercially viable. And so the project sort of went on the shelf for six months. And I sort of had this frustration where I was like, well, what the hell? The economics make sense. The market is ready. Like the technology is there. Why is nobody doing this? And I just kind of realized, I was like, I don't want to be asking myself the same question in five years and that there's yes. still nobody doing it. I need to like go do it or else it's not going to happen. Partially because I believe, you know, when we were talking about sort of that metric of, you know, space companies providing value to Earth, that that is the best metric to track whether or not we will become a multiplanetary species. Like, I love that, you know, Elon builds bigger and bigger and bigger rockets, but that's not the thing fundamentally that is going to make us a multiplanetary species. Yeah. If you look at California, the way that California got developed wasn't by Lewis and Clark arriving on an extremely large boat. The way California became California was the gold rush. It was providing yes. economic value. Yes. To the rest of the economy. And then that is what caused it to be industrialized and settled and like, you know, grow very rapidly. And that we need to be focusing on that for space as well, where the gold rush for space is the metric of how is space providing value back to the rest of the Earth economy. And that space manufacturing is one of the best ways to massively grow that particular metric that will eventually lead us to becoming a multiplanetary species. Yeah. And I mean, it's really it's really quite interesting in various ways, right? Because I mean, you mentioned sort of the difference between space manufacturing uh, for space, right? As sort of the people who want to like, uh, you know, pr like build satellites in, in orbit, right? And to some extent that has actually happened before the space manufacturing for Earth, right? With companies like Made in Space. But now finally, it looks like uh, you know we have several companies um, really focusing on space manufacturing uh, for Earth, and of course it makes all the sense in the world because we've known for many years that it makes theoretical sense to produce certain things in space, or we can only do that. It was just always too expensive, but now the costs are coming down, so it's a prime example of of of, of using of using that trend. Um, so in, in terms of so, uh, so let's say you produce something in space, and I think um, how much of a difficulty is then sort of like integrating that into sort of like existing let's call it supply chains for like of better word on earth do you think that's going to be fairly sort of like smooth or is that maybe harder than first meets the eye yeah i mean i'd say you know the way that we think of the company is we're sort of like a contract manufacturer uh that you know provides you know zero gravity uh to our clients uh at some point i would love it if it's you know much closer to a relationship where a manufacturer comes to me and says hey i have this process that i would like to be done in zero g can you please do that for me because i know you have the expertise the logistics the infrastructure etc however it's not that simple today instead we have to go quote unquote much more full stack where we actually have to sort of become our own customer, right? You know, it's just like the iPhone didn't, you know, launch with the App Store on day one. They yeah. developed their first 14 apps. We're sort of having to do the same thing where, uh, you know, for our first handful of materials, we're having to go much deeper. We're actually buying the raw supplies ourselves, producing them in microgravity, integrating them into actual end components, you know, end yeah. uh, systems, and then finally selling those end systems. And over time, we're trying to convince people, hey, we don't really want to be buying the raw materials. We don't really want to be the integrator. And eventually we'll hand those off to others and focus on sort of like our core skill sets and then just start to expand the sets of materials that we work on um but yeah that's part of
partially why, you know, there's almost like a third of the team at Varna. There's sort of like a, you know, material science PhD type team um, that really focuses on those, you know, sort of more, you know, full stack and integrations to make sure that we can more smoothly integrate it in the supply chain. And it is definitely yeah, not an easy process. It is not as simple as, uh, you know, hey, let's just apply zero G to this manufacturing uh, and then our customers will pay us. Um, there's a lot more work that's going into it. But I hope that, again, just like the iPhone proved out the value of the platform by developing the first 14 apps, and then two, three, four versions later, then had a very vibrant app ecosystem. I hope the same thing will happen with us, where we will prove out these first handful of applications, and then that will prove the value of the platform, and then we can really just focus on the platform and have many apps coming to us. Yeah, I think that's very interesting you're saying that, because I've, I actually, another thing I totally agree with, I think actually some people, um, some potential or existing space entrepreneurs sometimes make that mistake that they don't appreciate that, at least for the moment, I believe and you seem to believe as well, it's better to be to err on the side of more integration, more vertical integration, because just developing like one part of the supply chain at times, it, it just becomes really difficult to convince people to that, that you want to fit in there, right? Yeah, exactly. I think too many people start off with the approach of like, hey, we're going to be the platform where you can go space manufacture. And it's like, but nobody wants to fuck no, space Nobody's coming. You so, put the platform, nobody comes. Exactly, exactly. And so that just like makes no sense to me where it's like, they're trying to like, you know, again, it's just like you need to prove the value first and develop yeah. it sort of like end to end. And then you can start to extract yourself from it and then start to, you know, lay yourself on top. Like, you know, in some ways, we're a materials company for the next like five years. And then eventually we'll be a space manufacturing company. But right now we're mostly a materials company. Like we got to take the materials from start to finish and, you know, make sure that there's, you know, value for our own customers. And over time we can start to become more of a platform. Okay, but let me ask you this. And so like definitely to some of, some of the other portfolio companies. So let's take MacDrive, for example, because MacDrive is, is actually sort of an anti-example of that because MacDrive is actually doing basically one very specific, very sophisticated component, which is a propulsion system. But one could argue like, okay, but if we generally like more, I'm just playing devil's advocate, right? If we generally like more vertical integration, should they not, uh, rather than trying then to convince the various customers to buy their propulsion system rather than various unnamed other, and there's so many, right, uh, propulsion systems, maybe they should kind of do their, uh, I don't know, uh, own space tag or something, which will be so much better than all other space tags. Um, but obviously that's, at least as far, as far as I know, is not the current strategy of MacDrive. So how did you guys sort of like weigh that, like those considerations? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a relatively like you know simple analysis, which is basically: is there a value chain that already exists, or is there not? Right. right? In space manufacturing, there is not a value not. chain that exists today. And so you need to fully integrate across that entire value chain in order to deliver it. And then over time, you can start to commoditize certain segments of the value chain and extract yourselves from them and instead have external providers that commoditize it. MagDrive operates in a pre-existing value chain that is very vibrant and very established, i.e. satellite manufacturer, right? There are many satellites that go up. There are many that get built. And each of them has very consistent layers of batteries, solar panel, flight computer, uh, you know, structures, uh, you know, propulsion. And so in pre-existing value chains, it's actually quite difficult to fully vertically integrate because the likelihood of you being able to compete across every single one of those very established, you know, layers of the value chain is actually extremely difficult. And yeah. so you're much better off focusing on one segment really and then well. just having a very differentiated product. And so yeah. the strategy of a company highly depends on the sort of maturity of the value chain that you're stepping into. And so, yeah, in 30 years, maybe there'll be somebody that steps into the space manufacturing value chain and says, hey, I'm just going to focus on this very one particular component yeah, of the, the, the bio bioreactor payload. Uh, I'm going to, yeah, something like that. Exactly. I'm going to have the best microgravity bioreactor, right? That company will be a very valuable company one day, and it will kind of look like MagDrive in terms of strategy, yeah, but the like right appropriate now. timing yeah. for that is definitely not right now, because like yeah. right now, if you do that, that's you know, just a complete you know, waste of capital. Yeah. 
Yeah, agreed. Okay, let's do like a similar announcement for, for Hadrian. And I find it a fascinating company. It's probably the one I least know, unfortunately. Um, but so this is basically, if I understand it, it's, it's, it's just aerospace-focused manufacturing in a much more efficient way. And like you said, um, a lot of aerospace manufacturing, um, I mean, for various reasons, like, you know, cost plus contracts and everything, it's just like ludicrously inefficient, right? And this is, again, you know, in a very established value chain, it's they're focusing on a very, very narrow segment. This isn't just like satellite manufacturing as a whole, where yes, it's like, you know, cost plus base. Hadrian is focused on like aluminum bolts and rivets and fasteners. And it turns out everybody from satellites to rockets to uh, everything in space needs to be joined together. And so they're just focusing on the parts that need to be joined together. And it turns out if you're in space and you have a joiner, and especially if it's on a rocket, you need to be very tightly manufactured of the precision and the like tolerances have to be very, very, very tight. And so what they're saying is, hey, we're going to focus on this very one particular segment, and we're going to do it the best. Because right now, your option is go to a mom-and-pop shop. You have to deliver them a yeah, USB yeah, yeah. drive with a CAD file. They never tell you what the actual lead time is. If they do tell you, it ends up being totally off. Instead, it ends up impacting your build schedule. And instead, Hadrian's like, we're going to use similar to MagDrive, focusing on just making this a wonderful, very differentiated experience where you can drag and drop a CAD file onto an online website. You get a guaranteed lead time. You know that it's going to match the exact precision that you need and the tolerances that you need, and it's going to be very well tested, and the alloy is going to be the exact alloy that you need. And then once they do that, then they'll start to expand ever so slightly. They'll add different types of materials. So maybe they'll add yeah. titanium uh, as opposed to just aluminum. They'll start to expand into you know larger products beyond just like fasteners. But again, taking that because this value chain is so established, better to focus on just like a very narrow segment on it and absolutely crush it. And so, yeah, they're specifically focused on just the you know, manufacturing of aluminum parts that go into you know space uh you know products like satellites and rockets and so is it um the, the reason companies like hadrian didn't exist before is it as simple as to say because like until very recently just the the, the not the production numbers in space which is way too small and hence it was a cottage industry that's probably exactly it. the volume was low enough that like it just made sense to be done by mom and pop shops because there yeah. wasn't a sort of like massive business to be had there but as the sort of exponential growth of the rockets and the space the satellite industry has taken off that cottage industry one is now large enough that you know there are real outcomes that can be built building a business there but then two also the pain points have gotten so much more painful because these cottage industries don't know how to grow exponentially right and so it, it, it becomes a sort of area that's ripe for opportunity where both the you know customer pain point um, is you know extremely high uh, and you know the value of that is you know uh, 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 growing exponentially as well yeah but I mean that's the, uh, this cottage industry point is not only for um, the, the, the bolts right I mean that's actually true for many many parts of like um, satellites I am you I mean well, you, just tons and tons I actually remember like Doug Sinclair mentioned it once to me that he thought like most of it is basically cottage industry. So I guess there's then many more sort of like uh, Hadrian type opportunities, right? Solar panels, flight computers, eventually, you know, full yeah. satellite buses. Like, yeah. you know, one of the things um, that I always think about is that one of the biggest opportunities I feel like right now in space um, is the fact that there's an opportunity to build sort of like what I call the like Dell for space. Um, oh, I, totally. You know, for satellites, right? right? Now, like, exactly. Yeah. Like you can kind of buy a satellite off the shelf today. Not really. It's more that there's just like more providers that will do it out of house for you, but yeah. there's not like actually hardware sitting on a shelf anywhere. Uh, versus, you know, I think uh, a similar sort of approach to Hadrian could exist for actually just making it so that there are flight computers and batteries and solar panels that are truly sitting off the shelf and are more mass manufactured on an automotive-like assembly line or a, you know, consumer electronics assembly line, as opposed to right now, most rad-hardened flight computers are, you know, effectively almost like built by hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, the Dell comparison is really interesting. I I thought basically my my comparison was sort of like um, the sort of contract manufacturer for iPhone type thing, right? Just like, 
outsourced, super efficient uh, mass manufacturing uh, type thing, right? And, and clearly, we but in some ways, you want a brand behind it. Like, yeah, the, it, like the first thing that you want is like the like Dell first. So that's yeah. like the, the the place you can go to that isn't just the manufacturer, but they're like the, the the brand and like the owner, and they like run the software and they make it so that if something breaks, you can go to them and there's like a warranty yeah. and things like that, as opposed to purely like a contract manufacturing like relationship. Yeah, fair enough. I can see that. There's also space where people are very concerned about reliability and uh, yeah, and, and all of that. Um, no, that's fair enough. Okay, let's. Um, okay, cool. We've actually managed to go through, uh, touch on all of your portfolio companies. Uh, only a cash. We haven't. Uh, maybe we'll get there still. But I want to take a step back and sort of talk about you know universe of investment opportunities in space. And so we, we kind of talked through the thesis for um, uh, in space manufacturing for Earth. Um, let's almost do like not like a lightning round, but I'm just going to throw out like a few kind of call it subsectors of space and see like you know what what do you think? Um, I'm just going to ask about launch because I mean there's like we have something like in our database something like 200 launch companies on paper right so which okay maybe like a few dozen are sort of serious in terms of funding but it's just just many right you guys are one of the original investors in spacex i mean what, what are your thoughts on about launch at this point i just think at this point you know uh it, it is unlikely that there's going to be a uh, new launch company you know founded that becomes massive given just the level of players that are in the space and their level of competence uh because you know in some ways it's like the railways where it's just like yes like there will probably be four or five maybe six, maybe even 10 operators. Are there going to be 100 operators? Absolutely not. And at some point also, I think it's going to go the way of like, you know, uh, you know, airlines in the US, where at some point also the like manufacturer of the actual, uh, you know, rocket is going to become different mm. than the actual operator of the right. rocket, you know, yeah. via regulations and stuff. I think that like, you know, industry has like a lot of maturing to go through, but um, I'm not sure I totally understand the venture investors that are, you know, investing in, you know, rocket companies in like, you know, 2020 or 2021. Um, yeah. it, it feels like you're sort of a decade, you know, sort of too late, uh, you know, to the ecosystem and that, you know, that, that, that market is already, you know, quite mature. Um, and, you know, uh, unlikely to have a lot of alpha in terms of investing. Yeah. So actually, so, so one related point uh, to launch, I guess, uh, so I mean, obviously the, the, the key company here is SpaceX, right? And um, and then the key within SpaceX for a variety of reasons right now, I believe it's basically Starship. Um, so I think it's fair to say that in-house, we believe that this is going to work for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't know, did you share that view? But... Yeah, I mean, I have a variety of friends that work on, you know, Starship and they're, you know, some of the best engineers that I know in the world. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think uh, the question is always, you know, with Elon companies and, you know, when? It's like, you know, timing, yeah. not yeah. like it. Um, and so, yeah, I think he's being a bit aggressive, you know, on the timing. Uh, but it's always the Falcon 9 Block 5 is like such an incredible product and an incredible price point that like even just having other providers reach that is going to be an extremely difficult milestone for many of them. And then by the time they even reach it, you know, he's going to have sort of innovated to the, you know, next step of the curve. And so, yeah, um, yeah I think, uh, I think, you know, I think it's more likely that Starship is like, let's say launches more than once a year to orbit probably feels more like 2025 or 2026. Um, I'm a little more skeptical of his, like, he wants to do, you know, orbital launches regularly in like 23 or 24. That feels, that feels not likely. I think it was a real Mars with cargo in 24. No, anyway. I know. <laughs> anyway, so but and that kind of brings me to another related point. We sort of like let's say it's my like second pet peeve. Like my first pet peeve was the one that's like there's not enough non-space entrepreneurs in the space sector. One of my other pet peeves is and pet peeve is a strong word, but whatever. Um is is basically um um I'm not getting, I'm hardly getting any Starship reliant business plans. And so if like, even if it only works in 24 or 25, right? Like this is like using the, the famous hockey analogy. This is where the puck is going to be. All of the business plans I'm getting is sort of where the puck is right now. It's like, oh, I'm going to launch on a Falcon 9 or something, right? Or on, on, on Rocket Lab Electron. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, do, would you also like to see more? I mean, there's just 
if you have a hundred ton or hundred fifty ton up capacity to low Earth orbit, it's just completely game changing, no? Yeah, I guess I, I may be laying more on the like other side, which is like I do think it's important to be like you know commercially pragmatic and not have too much external risk to the company. And so, ideally, what I would like to see is like people that can both make money on the Falcon Nine, but then also immediately have a plan for when Starship goes online, right? Yeah. So I think that's the ideal. Where it's like I think you actually so in some ways want both sides of it. Of you know, it's the same thing that we think about in part. It's like we have a like configuration hardware, et cetera, that we're going to make sure to be like launching on a regular basis on yeah. the Falcon 9. And it's going to de-risk many parts of our technical stack. And that same technical stack applies extremely well to when Starship is online. But thankfully, that won't be like the first time that we're launching. At that point, we'll have de-risked many parts of our technical yeah. stack and are ready to adapt to our like you know Starship capacity. Versus you know most people aren't necessarily like thinking about that, planning for it. Their Falcon Nine launches aren't necessarily de-risking the thing that would be the sort of ideal architecture for when you have something that's you know 100 tons to orbit. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think yeah the answer is maybe somewhere in between. That like yes, you both need to plan for Starship, but I don't think you should orient your entire business only around Starship. Unless you, also you, have, unless a way. you have to because you're building. I don't know. You, you need you need that much up, up capacity. And that's where I'm like not as interested in funding those companies where it's like, I don't think that you should be building something that can only work with Starship quite yet. Right. Um, I, you know, I think, you know, Elon is, you know, great and exciting, but there are, uh, you know, many ways that, you know, some of this stuff, you know, can go wrong. You get hit by a bus tomorrow and facing some fold yeah. or, yeah. Uh, you know, Tesla goes out of business or something and, you know, that wipes them out. And so they're just, you know, there's I, the, there's lots of risks that come with building a business that's too reliant on an external provider. So, so by the way, did I, um, did I read it correctly? You guys at VADA, um, I think you, you signed up with um, Rocket Lab, Electron? The photon uh, it was a Photon. Um, so uh, we are uh, purchasing their satellite platform, uh, the Photon, and then we haven't announced our launch provider yet. Um, so the Photon oh, so it doesn't is their necessarily satellite. have to go on, uh, on on Electron or Neutron or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we explicitly okay. said, you know, in that original announcement that we'll be planning on, uh, you know, doing a you know ride share, but we haven't actually announced who that launch will be with yet. Okay, okay. Coming back to sort of like our uh, briefly discussing like various um, opportunity potential opportunity sectors. Okay, so we talked about like launch, including Starship. Um, how about and so like, I don't know potential next big thing like satellite communications, right? I mean, we have like very traditional satellite communications, geo, then we had the first wave of sort of like uh, other constellations, like which all went bankrupt, right? Like in the late nineties, like Iridium, Globalstar and so forth. Now we got like Starlink and, and Project Kuiper on the, on the broadband side. We have like, I, I lost count, uh, probably two dozen IoT constellations. Um, then we have the component side. I don't know, is there anything you find interesting sort of in the SATCOM value stack? <laughs> I get more excited, you know, in relation to like SATCOM around like just like the next gen, like satellite servicing, satellite, you know, refueling, satellite, you know. Oh, I'm going to get to that. That's where we go. Okay. Or, yeah. Orbit services. Okay, we can do that if you want. I mean, if there's nothing in SATCOM, we can talk orbit services. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't get super excited by like SATCOM. I just think like yeah, Starlink's doing an incredible job. There's a handful of companies that I think have the opportunity to you know do really well with backhaul, like Astronus and things like that. Um, but you know, I think it's like it's an interesting market. I just think it's really hard to compete with the economics of like terrestrial fiber, and it's only continuing to improve. And so yeah. SATCOM, you know, in a best case scenario ends up being, you know, 10, 15, 20% of like the, you know, internet market as a whole. Uh, but I don't think it ever really gets, you know, much above that. And man, just like, it's just really tough to compete against just like laying a, you know, tube of glass yeah. and like, you know, communicating through it. But there's obviously, you know, areas like, you know, rural, et cetera, where, you know, fiber doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, but yeah, not not an area that I necessarily pay, you know, a ton, ton of attention to. Uh, but yeah, and like the orbital servicing area, that's one area that I'm like, you know, really excited by where it feels like it's one of those things that there's ways to clearly, you know, de-risk now. Um, you know, through sort of smaller scale launches and technical proof points. And that as Starship starts to come online, man, then you can really create, you know, sort of game changing, uh, you know, products in terms of, uh, 
uh, being able to actually, you know, have something that consistently, you know, stays in orbit and refuels lots and lots of different satellites, partially because of the increased capacity for launch, but also because of the increased density of satellites out there. Of just like, yeah. you know, just like gas stations don't make sense until there's enough cars on the road, um, you know, same thing sort of in space where orbital gas stations don't make sense until there's enough satellites on the road. Yeah, 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 yeah. just don't work out. Um, I was going to say that, that because I mean, you can kind of say play it in the good, like good and bad way, right? So, so in the, in the good sense, it's a clear sort of picks and shovels play, right? Um, well, many of these businesses are. And on in the bad sense, it's like you're saying, well, it's sort of a derivative business, right? It's sort of like people put satellites up there because hopefully they do something useful for Earth. And then you, as a derivative, have those satellite uh, satellites basically as customers, which I guess means it pushes it a few years out and has this additional layer of risk. Totally, totally. Yeah, I, I similarly like segment each business by like, is this one that is trying to provide value for Earth or is this mostly providing value within the space ecosystem? Um, and, uh, you know, I think both are obviously valuable and important, right? MagDrive is purely, a, you know, providing, you know, value uh, within space. Hadrian is as well versus, you know, VART is explicitly, you know, on the other side of that. So I think, you know, both are, you know, important to have, but, uh, you know, dropping infrastructure costs, logistics costs, servicing costs always improve the economics of the ones that are actually providing, you know, value to those, you know, uh, you know, other industries on Earth, and so it's important as well. Yeah. So one um, orbit services, one quirky one that we've looked at a few companies, and there's another one coming out of um, uh, Y Combinator now, Turian, which is basically managing space debris. Uh, we passed on everything, and I can explain why. I don't, I don't know. Is anything you've looked at? Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, similarly uh, to you know, let's say orbital servicing and refueling, you know, space debris becomes you know, sort of more important as there's you know more satellites up there. Um, I think, you know, my major question is going to be around, uh, you know, uh, space debris sort of strikes me as a similar thing to like airline traffic and airline mm -hmm. traffic, uh, you know, for sure, there's some companies that have made some amount of money, you know, selling into, you know, air traffic control and things like that, but they're not like massive, massive outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I fear that it'll be sort of a uh, industry that largely sells to regulators and becomes sort of a, you know, sort of government, uh, you know, based program. Um, as opposed to something um, that has sort of massive, massive commercial upside. And so while I think there is something there, it's not clear to me that it's as, as big as commercial upside as just focusing entirely on the commercial market. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up the, a, a sidetrack here because you brought up an interesting point, which is a whole government point, right? So obviously, traditionally, space sector very dependent on government and, and arguably SpaceX in its early years, extremely dependent on, on, on the government, to some extent still, still today, right? And it's true for many, many space companies, right? I mean, you mentioned Spire has been commercial customers, but Spire also has a big government business right i mean um i guess it's sort of this ambivalent thing right it's sort of like it's really great it's really great the governments are there because they're sort of providing sort of a uh, base level of demand or something right and then you have like the non-dilutive funding depending on the countries and stuff like that and then of course uh, some people don't like it because like well this is too dependent on government and governments can change and policies can change and everything i hope i don't know how does that enter into sort of your evaluation of companies yeah i mean i definitely um yeah i think uh, it's been really exciting to see the United States, you know, over the past you know, decade, and especially so in the past three years, reorient around trying to be a, a significant player in the venture capital ecosystem, whether it's the combination of, you know, SBIR programs getting, you know, yeah. rolled out, you know, across a variety of different, uh, you know, operating groups or groups like the, you know, Defense Innovation Unit, where they, you know, are reporting directly to the Secretary of Defense, and they're yeah. the only contract agency, uh, you know, that does so. Um, I think all of these, you know, are signals that the, you know, DOD is becoming, you know, sort of better and more friendly to work with as a startup. And I think they're, you know, a great, uh, uh, they're great as an investor because it sort of allows you to invest further down the technical curve where, mm -hmm. okay, maybe there are certain things that just aren't commercially viable yet, but they're viable for the DOD and defense and government. And they're, and the DOD is very interested in funding it for the first three years. And that acts as the stepping stone that eventually gets it to commercial viability. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely something that um, I actively, you know, underwrite or think about with a lot of companies. Um, and 
Uh, what's nice is there used to be a much more reliance on um, NASA, uh, and that was uh, much more uh, reliant on political whims of the yeah. particular administration, versus the DOD is a much larger beast and much slower to move between administrations, and so it's much yeah. more consistent. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess the, yeah, the net conclusion being that um, uh, I do underwrite it. I'm not as fearful of the political whims, you know, changing that much. And I think at this point, also the just commercial economy has just gotten so big that, like, even if all DoD funding were entirely to stop in space, it would slow things down and quite quite yeah. a bit. But it wouldn't kill things. Even three years ago, it would have killed things. Yeah. Today, it will no longer kill things. Yeah. No. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Coming back to sort of our investment stuff and finishing up here. Uh, okay. Another quirky one for you. Sort of lunar economy. It's kind of moving back on the radar screen, right? Because there's a bunch of upcoming lunar missions. Of Starship works, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where it's like just like space manufacturing for space. It's like it's you know inter interesting intellectually, and I'm excited that like some people are working on it. But at the end of the day, you're only you know there's not going to be any real commercial customers you know there for a very long time. Yeah. Um, you know you're talking about you know five seven ten years away yeah. um and so unfortunately just not venture backable but uh at least you know venture backable at the you know scale of outcomes that we need um i understand that there's you know sort of seed uh you know space investors that can invest in something that you know only has a 150 or 200 million dollar outcome and you know being a subcontractor for nasa you know provides those types of outcomes it's so that can be fine but not interesting unfortunately to like a founders yeah. fund yeah um is there anything okay so let me ask you the way around i mean is there anything you wish there was that would be there in space i mean you kind of like you know, when you incubated varda because you couldn't find any company is there any other opportunity you wish there was something there um that existed yeah i mean i think i think there's something around sort of like satellite servicing and the yeah, satellite refueling that you know there's some companies that are working on it but i think if i were to like incubate a company and do it from scratch i would take slightly different approaches um but i think there's at least the the players in space servicing and space refueling are sort of much better suited and much more in the right direction than any of the space manufacturing players were. So um, I feel like it's more likely that there will turn out to be an interesting investment that I can make there um, as opposed to having to you know incubate something there. Okay. 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 As we're kind of winding down towards the end here, um, let me ask you a few um, uh, different questions. So if everything goes well, um, let's pick some sort of sensible time frame. I don't know, but 2030. <laughs> Right. Where, what will space look like? And then what will companies like, where will companies like Vada be ideally? I think by 2030, you'll have on the order of, you know, 50 to 75, uh, you know, humans living in, you know, low Earth orbit uh, or beyond. I think you'll have, you know, space factories that are, you know, re-entering materials on uh, basically daily basis, you know, down here, you know, to Earth. I think you'll have, yeah, multiple internet constellations covering the entire Earth, multiple observation constellations covering the entire Earth across a variety of different, like, spectral bands. And you'll have on the order of, yeah, 10-plus heavy lift commercial launch providers uh, that are going to space quite regularly and probably the early days of like a, you know, government run, you know, sort of research colony, sort of the equivalent size of what the ISS is today, mm -hmm. um, having an equivalent sort of facility basically on, on the moon um, and regular commercial resupply, you know, to there. Uh, that's probably my intuition. So yeah, on the order of like six to seven people consistently living on the moon mm -hmm. and on the order of like, you know, 50 or so living in low earth orbit and probably in or low earth orbit doing commercial activity, uh, mm -hmm. you know, more mm -hmm. so than just government research. Anybody on Mars? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> we'll see the timelines. Okay. Uh, well, let me ask you the other way around uh, without trying to be gloomy or anything. So, I mean, we're, we're both clearly very excited about sort of potential space economy. Um, what, what could go wrong? What could derail us, you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's starting to just be, you know, sort of more and more stability. I think the, the thing that could, you know, derail things is if you have too many of these sort of like public companies um, that are, you know, going out right now, Rocket Lab, Spire, you know, um, Astra, uh, et cetera. Oh, you're uh, saying kind of like a bubble, bubble burst, people get, uh, you know, investors get frustrated, that kind of thing? Yeah, because at the end of the day, investors only invest when they think there's going to be like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? Yeah. So if the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, looks a little too rusty and not too colorful, uh, then people's enthusiasm upstream really dries up quite quickly. And so I yeah. think the like sort of leading indicator to be tracking about whether or not there's a bubble is, uh, you know, whether or not these sort of publicly traded companies do well over the next like two to three years. Yeah. Um, and it's partially why I get excited by companies like Spire, where Spire, Spire's revenue base is so deep in the like non-space world um, that it feels more likely that even if everything else crashes around it, Spire can continue to perform well um, and, you know, continue to do well. And, you know, you, you only need a handful of companies like that, right? Like where after the yeah. dot-com bubble, there's only yeah. a handful that survived, but that was enough to sort of keep the internet and technology ecosystem, yeah. you know, alive and get to where it is today. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think you could see a similar sort of dot-com bust. Agreed. But mm -hmm. I think, thankfully, we're already past the point where it won't fully die. Um, it just might be that there will be a very small handful of survivors. Yeah, and, and plus what we said before, one difference to, to the internet.com bubble is you have the underlying government demand, which will continue and probably grow, to be honest, for geopolitical reasons. Um, totally, totally. I mean, as China continues to run their own independent space station, as they start to do you know, more space projects, uh, you know, the U.S. will want to step up as well. Yeah. Okay. Any, any anything else you think that might derail us? No. At the end of the day, like you know, as long as investor dollars flow, ecosystems thrive, right? And so at the end of the day, that's like the primary thing to be tracking. Because yeah. at the end of the day, I feel like I mean, you know, maybe this is obviously me having a bias from speaking from an investment perspective, but everything flows from that. The more investors that there are, the more companies yeah. that get funded, the more news that there is about space, yeah. the more aerospace engineers go yeah. to college and want to work in aerospace, yeah. the more talent yeah. that there is, et cetera. It all comes down to the you know. It all comes down to the money. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I agree, actually. <laughs> it's funny for me, actually, the, the, the sort of the, the, I wouldn't call it a risk, but sort of like something that need, we need to fix is something I mentioned before. It's just, I wish there was more entrepreneurs and more investors in the sector. I want to like, you know, drag them in even faster to make this grow yeah. faster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I would actually say, I think there's like, a, I mean, at least maybe it's different in the United States, but man, there's a lot of my like, you know, more traditional investor friends that all of a sudden I'm seeing them do a lot of space yeah, companies. No, like, true. this is amazing this to see. So uh, yeah. it's definitely growing. Okay. Um, different question how do you um what are your sort of favorite ways if any to, to keeping tabs on the on the space sector i mean you mentioned you started going to conference and stuff like that but i don't know if anything else could be anything could be podcasts could be books could be conferences um i don't know people on twitter <laughs> Yeah, so I really like this one newsletter, uh, Payload Space. Um, they do a really good job of sort of, you know, breaking everything down in the, you know, space economy. Um, and then I really like just like, you know, following all the reporters that, you know, cover uh, the space industry. So, uh, you know, Michael Sheets, Eric Berger, Lauren Gersh, uh, all of them, I think, you know, uh, Ashley uh, Vance, uh, all provide just like a really great sort of up-to-date, you know, heartbeat of like what is going on in like the space industry. Um, and then, yeah, some of my favorite conferences are Space Symposium in Colorado yeah. uh, and SmallSat in Logan, Utah. I think going yeah. to both of those gives you a really broad, uh, you know, view into the entire sort of space industry. Yeah, yeah agree. Did you go to satellite this week? Uh, uh, I didn't, unfortunately, uh, in DC. But yeah, uh, you know, was yeah, wanting to. Okay, cool. And I'm uh, speaking of resources. I totally forgot. I think you have your own podcast as well, uh, operators podcast. Yeah, it's obviously very unrelated to you know space, but mostly yeah. just interview basically you know people that have been early employees and executives um, at uh, you know very high growth companies. Um, so everything from you know DoorDash, Ramp, Fair, yeah. um, you know uh, tons of different companies that I've interviewed. And the idea being that you know on podcasts, too many people interview just boring you know VCs like us uh, and CEOs, and they should. Instead of be interviewing uh, the much more interesting people that are actually operating the companies. 
Yeah, and, and like I said, even though it's technically not related to space, I think it's still a very valuable resource for people who want to be space entrepreneurs. So I still have to shout out and I recommend it. Uh, last thing I want to talk about, because I love it and I know you love it too, I think by now, is the city of Miami. Um, Founders Fund opened up an office. Uh, many other startups are popping up in Miami. How, how's the ecosystem now? And is there any sort of like link to space? I guess the space activity in Florida is obviously more in central Florida, uh, Space Coast and then you know, thereabouts. But I, I don't know, is there any sort of connection or maybe now, maybe in the future um, with the Miami ecosystem? I think, yeah, I, I do actually think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the, the reason that sort of most of the space companies in Florida are on the you know, central coast is just because that's where Vandenberg was, and there didn't really make sense to be anywhere else in Florida, versus now that Miami has all of a sudden become a massive investor ecosystem, basically overnight, yeah. where, you know, you sort of have, uh, you know, on the order of like, I mean, at this point, it's like $350 billion of AUM, right? That's like yeah. basically as large as like, you know, the entire space economy combined um, has moved to, you know, Miami over the course of like the last, you know, year. Uh, I am starting to see both space entrepreneurs and and, you know, companies that already exist, opening offices down here, being founded down here as they want to be sort of near, you know, this ecosystem. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's partially why, you know, I sort of split my time basically between, you know, Miami and L.A., sort of the two major, you know, space hubs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in, in the U.S., at least for me. And I'm hoping that, you know, Miami becomes more and more of one over the coming, you know, five to ten years. No, I agree. And I guess maybe it's feasible, like even if you're something hardware, maybe you could have your sort of office in, in, in Miami and then you have your facility up in uh, Cape Canaveral where Space Florida is offering, you know, good incentives and all of that. Exactly. And it's a short hop up and we actually have a really great like private trail uh you know train line that you know runs between the two yeah yeah but anyway, i mean one related question which is but why 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 do you think sort of in like you know two minutes why miami suddenly because i used to have an apartment in miami like you know about seven ten years ago used to go there all the time and i was asking why can't this be a bigger sort of entrepreneurial hub you know and the only entrepreneurial company was basically stuff that was like latin america oriented and some random others um why, why did you think this happened is it as simple as like a lot of people give credit to a francis Suarez, who, who i think is a great mayor but is there anything else so yeah I, I mean i really think it comes down to just like a handful of like individuals and the you know black swan of like i literally joked that like you know the first domino that fell was jack abraham from atomic ventures moving mm -hmm. to miami uh and you know whatever it was April of, you know, 2020. That is eventually what led to, you know, Founders Fund considering an office there, Founders Fund opening an office there. That's led to us announcing it. That's what got on the, you know, mayor's attention. That's what eventually led to, led to you know, my tweet talking about moving Silicon Valley to Miami. That eventually led to the first viral tweet of the mayor talking about moving Silicon Valley to Miami and eventually got him on CNN, Washington Post, both of us getting interviewed across all these things. I think it's just like, there's not some like big macro thing. It's like actually just the decisions of like less than 10 people uh, all of a sudden literally like, you know, changed the entire or, you know, sort of created an entire ecosystem from scratch. Interesting uh, yeah, yeah, super, yeah. super exciting. And at this point, it's obviously much larger than any of the you know, 10 of us. Uh, it's incredible yeah. to see how quickly you know, uh, the ecosystem is riding the exponential curve. And it really is. And I recommend it to founders who are location flexible. I recommend every, everybody visit there. Last question, as always, is about science fiction. Um, do you like science fiction? And if yes, what are some of your favorites? Um, yeah, I mean, I like uh, you know, Delta V, which is about asteroid mining. Seven yep. Eves by Neil Stevenson, which is about the moon breaking apart. Um, you know, obviously classic, you know, uh, Martian by Andy Weir. Um, Andy Weir's latest book, which is The, the Name is Slipping Me Right Now, I like as well. Um, yeah, huge, huge sci-fi fan. Those are some of my favorites that I just listed. Good stuff. But I mean, uh, I, I guess uh, your day job and my day job is we, we got to turn science fiction into reality. So let's do it over the next few years. I yeah, exactly. Pleasure. It was a pleasure to have you. Um, all the best to, to Founders Fund, to all of your portfolio companies. And maybe we'll do this again in like, you know, in a couple of years or so and, and see how far things got. Sounds great. Thanks, Raphael. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. 
Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.